Traveling the Vortex. We've joined the Doctor as he travels the Vortex and arrive at episode number 444. And on this podcast, we change Doctors as regularly as a snake sheds its skin. I'm Keith. I'm Sean. I'm Glenn. How are you guys? I almost went out of turn. <laughs> that would have really thrown Sean off. Yeah, especially since we're not even sitting in the same spots this week. Oh. It doesn't take much. <laughs> Do you guys have a good week? Yes. Yes. Yes, I, 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 had, I had to think about it, but I'm pretty sure I had a good week. Do anything fun? Watch any movies? I watched a couple of films. <laughs> Do you watch any films that we aren't going to already discuss? No. <laughs> I went and saw Joker. How is it? Challenging. Hmm. It, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Logan in that... You know, it's a pretty good movie, but at the same time, it's not necessarily an enjoyable movie to watch because Logan was so heavy. Um, I think this one certainly has way more in common with stuff like Taxi Driver and Falling Down than it does um, any of the DC stuff. But uh, Joaquin was phenomenal. He gave a, an inspired performance. And... Um, I'm still kind of percolating on it. I'm not sure. It's just, you spend most of it just being very uncomfortable. So it wasn't necessarily a, you know, unnecessary and heavily tied into the DC universe? Um, No, not really. They, I mean, obviously it's a Batman universe-esque title. So therefore we had to go through the origin of Batman again. But I will say they did something very unique and different with it that I did not expect or see coming until it happened. And then it was like, <laughs> that was cool. I didn't watch anything, but I did finish listening to the latest uh, Diary of River song box set. This is the one where she dips back into kind of either in the middle of or prequels to several classic Who stories, including the very first one with cast from adventure in space and time. And for the most part, the stories are pretty good. It's another box set where they don't really tie the stories together at all. So they're all standalone tales. Um, but the prequel to web of fear, um, called web of time is probably the best out of the box. And that's the second story. The other ones are, they're pretty good, but that one is really well done. And the last one, because it's, I think, mostly because it's set as a prequel to Talons, I wasn't as impressed with it as probably most people are. <laughs> Definitely worth listening to. I didn't watch or listen to anything, but I did join in uh, Ranker Pit this week over on Sci-Fi for Me, you know, which is their Friday night. Um, every other Friday they do a live Star Wars um, talk back. And uh, so I joined in on that, and it was it was fun. We talked a little bit about uh, the uh, films and, and re-release and, you know, they're gearing up for 4K. We still haven't seen a Disney say anything about releasing the films in their original form, that kind of stuff. So it was fun. Good to our show. A lot of, you know, interaction and a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's move on to feedback. 
feedback or news. I know. I know what I said. All right. Feedback. <laughs> Our feedback this week comes from Jamie. Jamie writes, Ho flow, low, low, po, show, vo, plo, ro, to, flow, oh, so, ro. Your jadoon's better than your Klingon. <laughs> it's also a little easier to say. <laughs> I had a week to practice. <laughs> the above chain is Jadoon for Hello Vortexers, translated using the online translator at jadoon.com. We should have them as a sponsor. <laughs> I've gotten your coverage of the Atom reveal in Prisoners of Time 9. You only really began to suspect around issue 8, and that was with a handful of other names. Also, hearing your updated thoughts on the quintessential Hartnell story was enjoyable and entertaining. Episode 136 and the conclusion to the Divergent Universe. Okay, you got me. I had Dreamweaver stuck in my head for about a day after listening to this one. <laughs> you finally got an earworm to stick. It was nice to hear the overwhelmingly positive reception to the Capaldi casting announcement. I, you, I liked his take on the Doctor, despite the complexity of the Series 9 arc. Caradroya, I remember enjoying this one. The splitting of the Doctor was fun and interesting. The Next Life. I enjoyed this one for the most part. Yes, it's a bit overlong with three discs instead of two, and it didn't really need to be. However, we get more of Carissa's arc, which would culminate in Absolution. Episode 137 and the start of your seventh Doctor coverage. Dragonfire. I remember enjoying this despite the cliffhanger. <laughs> I really like Ace, and her introduction here was quite good. We would later learn that the time storm that brought her to the Ice World was the work of Fenric, and I thought Kane was an excellent villain. Over the top, but still a realistic threat that was played straight. He wasn't silly over the top and was well acted. As for Shockwave, I remember enjoying this one, but that's about it. I don't have any strong feelings. Prisoners of Time 7. I enjoyed this one. The art was excellent, and I thought all the characters from the show were portrayed well. The master in this feels like a bridge between the Ainley master and the Eric Roberts master. Episode 138 and Sarah Jane Season 4. Not anything to say here is I haven't watched these. Moving on to 139 and the Seventh Doctor Retrospective. Am I the only one whose family watches National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation every year? I think it's the only Christmas movie we watch every year. No, I watch it year to year to year to year. It's my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas movies. And Sean, your rendition of Walking on Sunshine as a feedback song was very well done. Thank you, Jamie. I really don't remember the McCoy Revisited. I haven't watched it in ages, so I'll jump right into my seventh Doctor retrospective. I really like him. He's one of my favorites. He's fun, but also a schemer who has a dark edge to him. I enjoyed the Ace arc, but agree that the era could have been so much more. I think J&T's meddling, and if I understand it correctly, it was also the BBC that had issues with the show, but I think these things hurt it. The BBC keeping it on a 70s budget, but expecting 80s quality, especially with Next Gen starting the same year as McCoy, hurt as well. Of his TV run, I'd say Battlefield or Remembrance of the Daleks would be top picks for best representation of the era. The Seventh Doctor did have the run of Virgin Adventures and a large host of Big Finish that majorly extended his run, and I think he had a good evolution over his time on TV. Wish we'd have still gotten more. Episode 140 and the Green Death. I enjoyed this one. It's been a while, but I did enjoy it. Boss was decently done, and the maggots weren't terrible. The giant fly was kind of bad, but the CSO green screen was done well enough. It's not underworld levels of bad. And the story is worth it just for Joe's departure alone. Episode 141, and the start of the 8th Doctor Month. Great opening, Keith, what with breaking the vial and oops. Exceedingly enjoyable. 
As for Terra Firma, it's been a long time since I've listened to this one, and I didn't care for it much. It was very confusing and not where it makes more sense as you progress. I just didn't like it. As for Samson and Gemma, their time with the Doctor is confusing. As for the Eighth Doctor Revisited, I agree that it was horribly underwhelming, and you can only reiterate the plot of the TV movie so many times. Granted, that was all they had since they were only using TV stories and Night of the Doctor hadn't dropped yet, which is probably where McGann was, as his absence was very keenly missed. Episode 142. Did I hear a prediction of the five-ish Doctor's reboot in the news section of this episode? I think you were talking about Davison denying these things and then being at filming something or another. Nice job. Enemy Aliens. I enjoyed this one. It's probably the destiny of the Doctor that I've listened to the most. The actual Space Aliens plot was a nice twist in being hardly relevant to the main plot, and Michael Maloney is rather good in the role. However, overall, a strong addition to the series. One good thing that you mentioned is Charlie's violent streak and how it just didn't seem like her. And I go back and re-listen to Seasons of Fear. She has quite the imaginative violent streak there as well. Prisoners of Time 8, the one that let everyone down. I think that of the individual issues of Prisoners of Time, which is an excellent series, this is the one I like the least. The story's meh, the art's awful, the villains aren't very memorable, and I, for one, didn't think Grace needed to come back. Yes, I like Grace, she's very likable, but she had a story arc in the TV movie that ended. I could see if the Doctor got involved in something on Earth, maybe including Grace, but she didn't need to travel in the TARDIS. She grew as a person and had the arc companions usually have in the TARDIS over the course of the film. Your rants on the topic were really entertaining, as always. So, the big question has to be, what comprises the Eighth Doctor's era? At the time you guys did your retrospective, all you had was the TV movie, Night of the Doctor, which is far superior in my eyes, hadn't dropped yet. So, the Eighth Doctor, I would say he's probably my favorite with 10 close behind, and 4 and 7 vying for third. He has a love of adventure and discovery that is just contagious. McGann brings so much range to the character that you just can't help but love him. Following his run through Big Finish, it feels like you've been there for all the ups and downs. And I think McGann's Big Finish run feels most like a TV era. What is McGann's quintessential Eighth Doctor story? I choose the Minisode. It's shorter, for one, and has less narrative production issues than you have with the TV movie. As for audio, I'd say Chimes, Fear, Storm, and Blood. It'd be Chimes of Midnight, Storm Morning, uh, Blood of the Daleks, and Seasons, Seasons of, Fear? of Fear. Very clever, Jamie. Sneaking those in there. Episode 143 and the BBC Eighth Doctor Adventures. I've only read seven of the 73 releases in the series, and I hadn't read the two from this episode, Earth, World, and Trading Spaces. Sounds like they're decent enough, although having a wiki helps understanding things a bit better. I really think having you guys go through the Eighth Doctor's line and or the Virgin New Adventures with the Seventh Doctor would make for some great episodes. Episode 144, Night of the Whisper. I thought this was fine, but that's about it. I don't remember much else about it. I have thought that Briggs's Ninth Doctor, while good, still sounds off. As for Sean's Hawaiian vacation, I had fun listening to his accounts, including getting lost by the highway. Yeah, it was more fun to listen to, I bet. Episode 145. So, despite not being a fan of vampires, werewolves, zombies, etc., I really like Project Twilight. 
It's really well written and acted. Colin shines, Evelyn does well, and Nimrod is one of Big Finish's best original villains. The Forge arc continues in Project Lazarus before tying in with the first Hex arc. And again, it's a really good story. Endgame. I haven't read it, but I did look, and it's the last of the novels featuring the 8th Dr. Treving solo. As for Prisoners of Time 9, I enjoyed this one. The story was good, the art was good, and they captured 9 well, and the reveal was done well. That's it for this round. 10 episodes, but I've tried to keep things short. Looking forward to the next 5, and I'll be at 150. At the time of this writing, I only have 289 episodes left to get through. Keep up the good work. Go, plow, plow, do, show, lo, tro, go, ro. Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. All right, should we move on to news? Let's move on to news. First up in news, a while back, a long while back, it seems, uh, we had news about uh, what looked like a fan reproduction of the Mission to the Unknown episode uh, that Nicholas Briggs was going to be a part of. And now it has been announced that it is going to premiere on the Doctor Who YouTube channel exactly 54 years after it was screened in the UK, which is October 9th. Yeah, it's not a it's not really a fan production per se. It was a college over there that did it, or a university that did it over there. Right. Part of it. Well, part of it. I'm, not, I'm not sure what the best way to call it since it, I don't know it was, yeah, it was BBC it was part produced. of a film film project. No, it wasn't BBC produced. It was a film project for a class that um, the students came up with, conceived based on the. Um, I, I wish I could remember the name of the university. But yeah, you know, based on that particular episode, they scripted it and did as you know close to the uh, original as they could, and they invited you know cast members. Uh, Peter Purvis, as you said, was there, and Nicholas Brid- Briggs helped out, and there was some hope that the the BBC would you know sanction it and do something with it. So now that's kind of come to fruition. So pretty cool. I look forward to watching it um, when it drops on the ninth. Yeah, the beauty of doing that particular story, too, is the fact that there's no doctor in it. There's no companions right. in it. So you can pretty much recast everybody and not have that little issue with, oh, you know, they, they recast the doctor, they recast Steven or something like that. And uh, you don't have to do that. You can just say, well, you know, we've recast characters that people either aren't familiar with or won't remember in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and any aliens that would show up in um, the big story are not significant enough in that from what I remember that it would notice if they were recast anyways. Well, and I think they're so heavily prosthetic and makeup to exactly. the uh, actual uh, Daleks master plan. So yeah, you definitely wouldn't, wouldn't remember. Really cool. I'm glad it's getting to see the light of day. University of central Lancashire, Lancashire, University of central Lancashire. That was the university. Okie doke. Well, let's move on to our review. What, what? There's still a little bit more news. Oh, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> uh, new details on the second season of Titans Comics, The 13th Doctor, were unveiled at New York Comic Con. In the first story arc, we'll see the 10th and 13th Doctors join forces, forces against the Weeping Angels, and we'll also feature the Autons. So it's a multi-Doctor story to kick off the second season. Cool. Same production staff, writers, and I think the art too. So, production production staff, staff. whatever. (laughs) Creative people behind the scenes. So, this is the the comic? Yes. Ah. Well, I 
I had seen this bit of news pop up, but it popped up at a time when I wasn't really able to pay attention to it. And I, in the corner of my head, thought it was um, on the show for season two, not the comic for season two. Uh -oh. So you, 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 you no. clarified that for me. Thank you. And which it's going to come out in January. And there's going to be two holiday specials coming out, one in November and one in December. So holiday special issues. I was going to say, again, we're talking comics here. Yes. Comic issues. Not episodes. And our last bit of news is a couple of con announcements. Uh, Chicago TARDIS just announced Arthur Darvel as their first guest for this year. And Planet Comic Con announced John Cleese Ooh. as a guest. Doctor Who alum? Yes. Uncredited Doctor Who alum. <laughs> but much celebrated. Yes. By Glenn. Yeah, I think he's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes, I just think of other things first before Doctor Who when I think of him. <laughs> wonder if we could push for a panel. As much as I enjoy City of Death. I, I can't think of anything else John Cleese was in. Um, <laughs> so, He's such an obscure actor. <laughs> with Jamie Lee Curtis. He did a couple of movies with Jamie Lee Curtis. One one that we choose to forget, one that we absolutely I, I remember love. Jamie Lee Curtis. That's about it. <laughs> Fish Called Wanda is in my top 10 films of all time. Favorite top uh, films would of all be. time. <laughs> all right. Should we move on to our reviews now? The House That Dripped Blood. A Scotland Yard inspector's search for a missing film star leads him to a haunted house. The house sets the framework for four separate tales of terror written by the author of Psycho, Robert Block, and starring horror icons Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Ingrid Pitt. All four stories center on the mysterious fates of tenants who have leased their the mansion over the years. Bum, bum, bum. That warms my heart that you like this one. I really liked this one. I like this one a lot, too. I think one of the beauties with anthology um, stories is that if you get a clunker, you just move on. Yeah, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's something else coming, and maybe that one will be better. And um, I hadn't really realized how much I kind of missed the old Tales from the Crypt series. Um, well, old, you know, the one from the 90s. Um, until watching these, and they just kind of started bringing all those feelings back. And it was like, I should look those up. <laughs> Well, and the nice thing about the movie format, as opposed to like the TV series format, is you just have to wait 20 to 30 minutes and then you're on to the next story. You don't have to sit through a whole hour yeah, of a story exactly. you're not impressed by. Although all of these I thoroughly enjoyed. I, there wasn't one of them that I thought, eh, that one wasn't too great. I, I yeah, had fun watching all of them. I'll break them down individually for us, Glenn. We know you're dying too. Oh, just, you know, I, uh, they're so good. I mean, Delam Elliot again returns in uh, another one of these type of stories. And it's just odd still to see him so young and not Marcus Brody. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, it's, I'm like you, I like the style of, and again, these came from, I mean, they were all written by Robert Block who actually scripted this as well. And they're all from short stories that he did in pulp, you know, uh, magazines, uh, back in the day, I think in the gosh, 
1962, one was from 39, one was from 47, one was from 39. He obviously updated these, you know, and, and, and modernized them a bit. But um, Fury, uh, Weird Tales, and I don't know where this other story comes from, but those were the particular pulp novels that these were published in originally. So I just, I really like that style of horror or, or thriller. I just, it, it's, there's, there's some sort of like... Um, classic nostalgic vibe to them that that's just really good um the the first one you know it's it's a variation on a theme but it's at the same time very original with the writer creating thinking he created his his character uh, setting it up with you know when when he when he writes, he can actually see in his mind's eye the the characters, and he really gets into them. And you know, writers, or you've you've heard interviews with writers that do that. And so there's a there's a sense of realism, and then to turn it around on it to be a uh, framing scheme between his wife and this other guy, it's just it's it's very much oh aha I know what happened there. But for him then to be insane and kill her at the end. I thought was crazy. I didn't expect that at all. Um, not that I expected the, you know, it to be a setup between the two, but for it to turn around and, and have that shock moment of, you know, who's, who's uh, Richard, I'm Dominic, and, you know, just, to, and they kind of leave you with that ambiguous. Does he really believe he's Dominic because he's nuts or is it because he really did manifest the character from his novel? That's what I really liked about the story was he could take it either direction. If you, if we're led to believe that this house has some sort of supernatural ability or, you know, influence on its residents, then you kind of have to go with the idea that he actually manifested this person. And it's something that maybe you come back to thinking about later, especially when you realize that the house does have a certain element of supernatural quality to it, because early on, they kind of, they, they play very light with the supernatural element, and then they lean really heavy into it by the end uh, as they go. And so I think that's what I really like because the first two stories of this are relatively realist and, and grounded in reality. And the last two are, are very much fantasies, um, which, really kind of, you know, it's a nice drive from one end of the spectrum to the other. And then it makes you call back to this and think, well, maybe he was a manifestation because as you said, you know, this house is, is influencing all of these stories in some way. Yeah. You pretty much hit it on the head with the, uh, the, the writer's conjuring of things. Um, I'm pretty sure Cyberman Bob is still under the couch, <laughs> but, uh, Denholm is just such a, uh, a solid, uh, actor. And I've not seen him in much other than, you know, uh, Indiana Jones, which I love. But um, to, to see something like this and, and you know, just kind of see a different shade um, was um, just kind of a treat. It was yeah. really, really cool. And I think we've all had those moments where, um, you know, we freak ourselves out. The mind plays tricks on right, us. Right. And, you know, a storm outside the window and you flash and you look and you see a shadow in the chair or, you know, whatever, those kinds of things. But to carry it to the degree that this film does, yep. um, it's just, it was absurd and awesome because it, it was just, this, this one I think to me felt probably the most like a Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah. And uh, here's a little footnote for you. Tom Adams, who played Richard and Dominic, um, he actually played Vorschach the commander of the sea base four in um, the uh, 
Warriors of the Deep story in Doctor Who, <laughs> which is ironic because we just had uh, Macaulay last last week playing from Somebody that exact from same that, episode. Yeah. So we've got another Doctor Who connection here. Uh, if you don't remember, he was the commander. He was the one that that he essentially saved the Doctor because when Ichthor tried to shoot him, he he dove in front of him and took the blast. So. Oh, the UK uh, actorship. It says she was <laughs> proving to be smaller and smaller. Uh, should we move on to the next one? Because this one was the one that I probably, the first time that I saw it, I didn't like it as much as I did this time. But this time, I think each time I've watched this twice now, and each time I've liked the stories in a, in a much different, unique order, which I think is weird. Because I think the last time I watched it, the cloak was my favorite, and I think part of that was the fact that because it was John Pertwee in the in the role, and it almost gets to kind of this campy, silly, <laughs> silliness of it. Um, but Waxworks was one of my, eh, you know, that was okay. It was a good story. This time, though, watching it, I enjoyed it so much more, and it kind of it elevated for me as far as um, my like for for it in in comparison to the other ones and i think almost i almost like this one the best now and which is really interesting to go from bottom of the heap to top of the heap but uh again i think it's because uh you know we again we get two doctors this week we get uh you know uh john pertry later we get peter cushing again um playing this you know uh bereaved man who's lost his was i was it his wife or his lover or something uh, anyway, the woman that he loves and then, you know, find her likeness in this wax museum, I thought was crazy. And then the old friend who was also part of this love triangle with him, with her, uh, you know, gets obsessed with it as well. And it, I, I, I kind of, this one, I think maybe another thing I didn't like about it last time it was, I felt it was a little predictable. I sort of kind of had figured it out before mm-hmm. it happened. Um, because I think it, they telegraph it all the way through, but I think maybe this time I was able to kind of zero in on the performance and we, you know, we talk about how just utterly charming, um, Peter Cushing is. He just oozes of charm in this one as well, even though he's, he's very almost on his back footing the entire time because he's so disturbed by the fact that he has seen this image of, of his love. And, uh, it's just, it, his performance is so good. Even the guy that's with him, and I can't, I wish I could remember the actor's name. Um, must have been Joss Acklin. Yeah. Joss I think he, Acklin. he does a good job too. Um, I think the only thing that, that bothered me and it's, you know, Sean and I are completely different people. We're, we're kind of an odd pairing, but these two did, these two didn't seem like, you know, two guys that would hang out with each other. And I think that was, I don't know why I felt that way, but you know, they, they, they try to pull it off as though, you know, they're old friends and the, but it's for some reason, the chemistry isn't quite there with them. And I think that's the only detriment to this story. Not that, not that either of them did a poor job, but they, they just, there was something about their friendship didn't quite gel. I think it's something to do with Peter Cushing because he, he portrays himself in such a way and carries himself in such a manner that he almost comes across as he is below friendship. Like I, I am such a sophisticated gentleman that I am better than any lowly friendship could be. At least that's how I always envision him and how he comes across to me on screen. So I wonder if that's well, maybe part they of it. they sort of do seem to be cut from different claws, though he's maybe more upper society, and the other guy maybe is a little more blue collar. Maybe that's why. Yeah, the other guy has definitely yeah. kind of got that. You're gonna come over and hang at the house for a beer and a football game vibe, and 
I, I don't know that I can ever imagine Peter Cushing watching football. <laughs> ever. I mean, maybe he did. No. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, no, don't, don't get that vibe from him. I, um, <laughs> I kind of fall down on Glenn's initial assessment um, going through this. This is my first time with the House That Drip Blood. And the uh, I'll tip my hat. The Pertwee segment was my favorite, probably because it was Pertwee. But um, this segment, as much as I love Peter Cushing, uh, doesn't work for me. And I think it's the weakest of the set. But now my reasoning for thinking it's the weakest of the set um, has everything to do with the plot and the setting. When you give me an anthology called The House That Drip Blood, and then we don't really spend a whole lot of time in the house in this segment. We're in the village. We're in the wax museum. We're back and forth on the road. We're, we're just kind of all over the place. It, it seemed odd to me, um, especially coming off the Denholm Elliott one, because I, I kind of thought that maybe I knew where I had this pegged, that it was going to be this, you know, supernatural ghost stories kind of house um, mm -hmm. and suddenly wasn't. And so like Cushing, I was on my back foot through most of this kind of going, where are you going with this? And then when we get to the reveal that not only does this woman look like um, his former love, but she actually is the wax museum guy's former love. Um, like, like you said, it became very telegraphed. Well, I know what's going to happen. You know, now obviously <laughs> the poster image kind of reveals that too. But uh, <laughs> that's yeah, true. So, well, we 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 know where this is going to wind up. It's just a question of how, and uh, mm. the how. I don't know. It just it, it it felt a little anticlimactic for me, and maybe if I go back and watch it again, I'll feel differently about it because, you know, Peter Cushing is obviously wonderful, um, and so there's no qualms with the, the performance level there at all. Yeah, I think I kind of fall in between the two of you. While I enjoyed the performances, I do agree that the plot was a bit predictable, but the performances were so captivating for me that I had no issues with the plot. I was just along for the ride. All right, well, should we move on to the next one? Sweets to the Sweet, looks like was what it was called. This It's almost odd to me to see... Christopher Lee so young. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I've watched several Hammer horror films where he is young like this, and it's still, I almost forget that I'm watching Christopher Lee. <laughs> because I'm so used to him being older. Well, that's just it. I mean, we're so used to him in Lord of the Rings and Star Wars that it, you know, it, he, he had that resurgence of, of um, his career there late in life. And that's kind of the things that we're familiar with. But I grew up watching so many Hammer films that I've probably seen more films with him at that age than I did him as Count Dooku. So back when he starred as Count Dooku and um, Saruman, he, you know, he looked old to me in those. So I kind of had the reverse <laughs> of that, uh, just seeing him and going, oh, man, Christopher Lee looks so old now. Um, so <laughs> uh, so I wasn't taken aback by that. But um, he, this is one of the roles, one of, probably one of the, 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 the first things that I've seen, you know, that he really had a lot. I mean, it, for as short of a little clip, uh, or you know piece of this film that it is he has a lot more time to develop when you see him in the dracula well particularly if you see him in the frankenstein films he's always plays the monster yeah. so there's very little for him to, 
there's very little dialogue. Um, but then when you see him in Dracula, he even then doesn't have a lot of lines. It's very much just an ominous presence. Um, but I mean, he does, he has lines, but it just seems like when he, you give him a role where he kind of, you know, put his chops into it, I guess he did with Dracula, but, but I'm uh, literally. <laughs> um, but when you put him to a role where he can really, you know, utilize those acting chops, you, you really, I think you kind of appreciate the actor a little bit more as well. And, and, and I think he has more substance in this as a young actor. So to me, that's, what's different because, you know, as Dooku and as Saruman, he does have a lot more screen time. He has a lot more dialogue. So you see that there, but in, in his younger days, there wasn't a lot of roles that I recalled that he wasn't, you know, the monster or, or the, or the, the bad guy of the film. Yeah, that's true. I kind of come down with Keith. Um, the, the big one that I knew Christopher Lee from before the resurgence was man with the golden gun. Ah, yes. Um, yeah. which is a wonderful performance from him, but again, bad guy. Um, well, even then he seemed kind of old. Yeah, he kind of had the, the 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 silver streaks in the hair thing going on, but it's it was weird to me because I'd seen that film you know a hundred times and then turn around and see him in Lord of the Rings, see him in these other things where he's you know legit older, and then I would go back and watch Man with the Golden Gun, and it still shocked. And me. he looks so young. <laughs> it still shocks me that he's that young. So then seeing him in this was like whoa, <laughs> like baby face Christopher Lee. Not that I would Almost. ever say that to his face because he, he scares me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you, you you mentioned you know his his gravitas as an actor uh, certainly in the in the later years that we've kind of become accustomed to. But I definitely think it was there all along. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. yeah. This is is kind of a, a definite indicator of it. Um, and I liked this one a lot. Although again, I thought it was a little predictable. Um, as soon as he dropped the line about, um, I feared her mother too, or something, I was like, oh, I, okay. Yeah. She's a witch. You know, I mm -hmm. just, I just knew, um, before the kid even did anything creepy. <laughs> just Well, the, the initial fear of fire was also a kind of a, a huge tip off. See, and I, I, I think that this segment does a really good job of not letting you in on all of the details too soon. And it's not until very much later, well, halfway through, where he says, you know, that she was, that his mother, her mother was a witch. And so leading up to that, there's some mystery. There's something wrong with this girl, something off. And I didn't take the fear of fire necessarily of the fact that, that the little girl, you know, was a witch or, or, or you know, could perform witchcraft. I just took it as there was something tragic that happened that affected her. And so... It, they 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 play that very tight for a long time of what is up with this girl why why is she so weird why is he why does he seem scared of her or he's very he's very strict at first because I don't get the impression that he doesn't come across that he's scared of her until you know the 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 teacher lady keeps kind of pressing for different things yeah. you know can she have toys and this you know getting permission to have toys and and why can't she go see other kids and that kind of thing and so. I think it, it, they do kind of drop that bomb about halfway through with, well, her mother was a witch, you know, they, uh, and he was, he's not scared of the daughter or he wasn't scared of the, the wife. He's scared of the daughter. It just, I guess he was scared of them both, but, um, but I think they do a really good job of kind of playing that closer to their chest for a long time and then build on that. And then when it, you're kind of 
you know, you presume, okay, well, the little girl must be, that's why he's so, you know, um, strict with her and why he's so, uh, you know, kind of an overbearing father is because of the fact that he's trying to protect himself. He's trying to protect her. He's trying to protect others. And it's at that point where you kind of, okay, well, so that's probably why she's being overprotected, but what kind of power would she have? Does she have over him? And then to, you know, the, the throwing the doll in the fire, it's almost a surprise of, okay, there obviously there's some reason why she can't have dolls, but you still don't necessarily know why until she makes the waxwork, waxwork one. Yeah. Which was a nice, uh, subtle hint to it. And the ironic thing is <laughs> because the role of Christopher Lee later in life as being the villain, I don't, didn't really trust him at first because, Oh, yep. he's the bad yep. guy. <laughs> right. He's right. not, he's just trying to protect his fa- daughter. Yeah. And himself and others. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he also portrays that very well of, you don't know if you should trust him and why, what his motivations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did a very good job with dulling out little parcels of information throughout this one. And his, aloof presence in the house um kind of added to that air of what is up with you and why (laughs) you know but um the reveal was great even though i i I saw it coming it was still a aha there we are and so it was a satisfying you know that we finally finally get to it it it's sort of a slow reveal because it's it's slowly revealed once you get past the halfway point, but it still develops into a shocker because you don't really kind of expect what sort of power she can have until she has it. Right. And that's when it's like very, oh, wow. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it almost comes across also as he's trying to protect her and keep her from developing the power further. And you don't realize how far right, she really right. is. He's, he's kind of misguided in the fact that he thinks that he can protect her from it, you know, yeah, to keep and, her from developing like, her powers. Right. And then I don't think if I, I think he must suspect that she potentially is powerful already, but yeah. if he keeps the elements that give her the vehicle to utilize those powers away from her, he's very misguided in that, but to, to, to keep those away from her, I think he thinks he has control of the situation, but he doesn't have control of the situation as we learn later because she's very resourceful well and as a viewer you're not sure if his motivations are you know to try to keep the things away from her or to keep her from developing the power not so much his motivations but as the viewer you're not sure why it which direction he's trying to go with it all right. Well, let's move on to the one that I, to me is still uh, top of the barrel. Uh, it, 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 it is a highlight. Uh, and, and it all comes down to the fact that Pertwee's playing this as a comedy, which is interesting because I read that when Pertwee, this was an interview with Pertwee, that this, a lot of these were written, this, this whole thing was supposed to be a horror comedy, all of it, every element of it, not just his. And what happened was last minute, um, the powers that be at America, uh, not America's <laughs> amicus, I was still doing it, uh, came in and they, they went, they wanted strictly horror. So they had to cut out a lot of the comedy elements. And he said that, you know, his, particularly his segment suffered from that. I think that a lot of the comedy still comes through and I don't think it's, it's, it's overt comedy. It is very kind of submersive 
um, dark comedy uh, that comes through, but the comedy is still there. And that's down to the fact of the way that uh, Pertwee portrays the character. I totally agree that his segment is a comedy. It, it felt so, and, and not in a bad way, but glaringly different from the other three segments, which were all kind of slow burn, dour, mm-hmm. um, kind of things. And then along comes this one. And it's, it, it, again, I, I hate to kind of keep going back to Tales from the Crypt, but it is the closest um, analogy. Tales from the Crypt always had a dark humor to it. But even mm-hmm. when you'd watch the show, you would get, okay, this is the gruesome episode. This is the standard episode. Oh, this is the comedy. You know, mm-hmm. they always threw those comedy episodes in that were kind of peppered throughout the seasons. And this was the comedy. It, it, it just came across that way. Um, and I can't imagine that his segment suffered them. I, I, I would think, if anything, that this was the one they just simply couldn't cut anything out of. Yeah. But maybe maybe not. Um it sounds like from his account, there was a lot. In fact, he felt that it, that the segment suffered because of that, but I don't think it suffered in any way because it, it still just, it really shines through. As an academic exercise, I'd be really kind of curious to try and track down an original copy then to see what was there. Well, I don't think it exists because they cut the script before they shot it. So, Oh, they, they cut the script before? Yeah, okay. they, 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 they cut the pieces out of the script before it was even shot. Gotcha. So. Yeah. Well, and knowing that he was also predominantly a comic actor, he did comedies for pretty much everything until he got the role of the doctor. Um, well, even this has been was shot between seasons of Doctor Who, so he was already starring as the doctor when they filmed yeah, this. That's true. So he already had the role. The other cool thing about this is that, and did you notice in his dressing room in the pictures on the wall surrounding the mirror, there's a picture of him. As the doctor standing in front of Bessie. I did see that. I did not. I'll have to go back and look for that now. <laughs> I didn't catch it until my second viewing. And of course, you know, the other connection is, and, and, and within the same uh, time frame, he also performed with um, Ingrid Pitt, who played, um, what's her name in this? Uh, Clara, I think. Um, she was in The Time Monster with John Pertwee. She played... Um, it was the um, oh, was the, the, the Queen of Atlantis, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So she he she played Queen of Atlantis in that. So we got another Doctor Who connection here. Of course, Ingrid Pitt. She's been a horror actor for for years and years, even before this particular film. She was that was kind of she was in a lot of campy yeah. horror films in the sixties, and then went on to be um, in The Wicker Man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um. The other thing, and I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, the guy that played uh, uh, the caretaker, not the caretaker, the shopkeeper, uh, Theo Von Hartman, did you recognize him? I did not. So he is the astrologer in Creature from the Pit with Tom Baker. Oh. He was the he was the creepy astrologer, or not creepy, but the kind of goofy astrologer guy, uh, Chloris, I think was his name. Who uh, was she? He made the predictions for um, oh the the woman of the house, you know the the main baddie gal. That's who that was. As Keith said, at some point you stop being surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Over here we have six degrees of Kevin Bacon. The English just have acting. <laughs> Everybody's in everything. Yeah. 
Gosh, this is a lot of fun. In fact, Pertwee also, I saw in one of the uh, things I was reading that uh, he, he, as he was portraying the character, he was, his performance was based on Christopher Lee's performance in horror film. In fact, he was channeling uh, Christopher Lee, and there is that line where he, you know, uh, and Dra- of course Dracula, but the the Lugosi one, not the chap who's playing him. Yeah, <laughs> which was the funniest, sickest burn I think I have yes. ever heard. <laughs> Pertwee said in that same interview that um, Christopher Lee came to the set to watch because they were friends back in the day, and he came to the set to watch uh, Pertwee film. And never once figured out that he was actually, that Pertwee was basically performing the part as Christopher Lee. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, there's so much of it that seems like it's just Pertwee being Pertwee also. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much of the doctor in it. Yeah, he's just being himself. And you can easily just see him just having fun with it. He has those terrific comedic expressions that always seem out of place in Doctor Who when he's being attacked. And he just had the, these things that he does with his eyes and his face. The bulging. And, and it works so well here because of the campiness of the, of the, of the particular segment. And we got know. several of them here. Um, you know, the, we did. the shock yeah. look with the disappearing eyebrows with, Oh, I you know, I turned invisible or the, you know, I'm being choked by an auton or the, <laughs> just let's <laughs> go down the list. Oh yeah. That was a perch. We yep. And, and the yep. outfits when he walked on the, <laughs> the wearing cloak. alone, just, just <laughs> the, the cloak. cloak. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, you know, not only was this filmed during <laughs> between seasons of Doctor Who, he they didn't change wardrobe. He just yeah. came right over from the set. <laughs> and they put the hat on. <laughs> so, yes, I'm, I'm gushing over this just a little bit because there was so much fun to it. But it's actually, I think it's a decent story. It is um, a good story, yeah. The idea that, uh, you know, these vampires are hiding out in the basement. <laughs> Come get him. Well, and the idea that a vampire vampirism is partially passed along by this cloak that the person who has the cloak mm-hmm. is destined to become a vampire. I've never seen that in a story before, and I thought that was really mm-hmm. clever. Yeah. yeah, that was a new one. Kind of turns vampire lore kind of on its ear. Yeah. And I, I think it, it works really well to kind of... Um, <laughs> to wrap up the framework too of this, you know, inspector that has now come to house to see for himself. Okay. What, what, you know, the, the realtor is completely warning him about this house and, and to you know, go down there, go into the basement and then be attacked by the vampires. I thought, okay, that, that just was this nice little bow on everything kind of wraps everything up nicely. But then the, t- the icing on the cake is to have the realtor come up and break the fourth wall. And address the audience about the house. You know, I just, that was, it was, that was the icing of the cake for the whole thing. And there is yet another connection to Doctor Who there. The guy who's playing the inspector looks like played in Towns of Wen Chang. He played Chang. Oh, is that right? And General Finch in a different story. An Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Oh. I did not know that the one. The inspector oh, well, was go. Chang. 
Yeah. Really? If it weren't for his IMDb picture being Chang, I wouldn't have realized it either. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Really, IMDb? (laughs) I'll be darned. I did not see that one. Mel and I both just really enjoy. I mean, that was kind of when I knew for sure that this was a winner was when Mel was like, that was really good. It's like, okay, yeah. (laughs) Because even she liked it. Yeah, this is one I think I would go back to every Halloween or just whenever I want to have some fun with a nice (laughs) collection of stories. You know, for a movie called The House That Drip Blood, there wasn't a spot of blood in the entire film. There really wasn't. What, this was PG? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it really was. It's almost all stated horror and no real like visual stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the scariest visual thing is probably uh, uh, Cushing's head on the platter. And even in that, it's not it's bloody. wax. Yeah, it's wax works. And I mean, it's obviously his head there because we it's disclosed that the guy's been encasing him in wax. But yeah, it's it it's. It's subtle enough that you, yeah, you don't see any gore. So. Yeah. It's definitely a lot bloodier than the image in the movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. absolutely. The, the artistic director is going, no, 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 we need more gore. All right. Well, should we move on to, uh, since we're doing Dr. Order here, um, <laughs> Lair of the White Worm. After a mysterious skull is unearthed, it is stolen and used by its new owner to worship a pagan god who hungers for the taste of virginal flesh in this cheeky horror comedy. I don't have a big enough Donna in me tonight. <laughs> I loved this film, and I'm, I, I was a little shocked that I loved this film because it starts off, and it's so slow it's just kind of meandering its way through the thing i mean it, it's a scooby-doo movie you know we're, we're setting it up and we've got meddling kids and then we get a wonderful segment where the entire plot of this movie is spelled out for us by a rock folk celtic <laughs> band <laughs> in song and you're like oh okay i bet the worm's gonna show up but I, it, it just there, there's so many huge chunks of exposition that it would almost be off-putting. And then the camp starts to seep in. And there, there, I, there's more cheese in this movie than Flash Gordon. It, it's, it's that level of cheesy. And it was so much fun. And I, I, I can't get over it. I really can't. Well, first... I don't know what kind of Scooby-Doo you watched as a kid. Um, That would have been the last thing I related this to, but I will say that I immensely enjoyed this film as well. But maybe from a perspective of this is a really, really bad film. It's a, it is (laughs) a, it is is a bad movie, but it's so bad that it's good. And it falls into the realm of the, of the, the type of genre that I like. It's, it's, it has a very B movie film feel to it and i think that's why it to me it it has a charming aspect of it's just you sit back once you realize what's happening that this film is not taking itself entirely seriously then you kind of sit back and you enjoy the ride you sort of realize okay this is so bizarre that it's good and that's where i fell down on it and then i the, the performances aren't even rock solid um the lady that played um, 
the actress that played Lady Sylvia Marsh, uh, Amanda, Amanda Donahoe. Donahoe. She is the best thing about it. She really is. Is she is performing top notch? And even though she is chewing the scenery to the point where there should have been no scenery left, she is giving it her all, and she is doing such a terrific job in this role. Everybody else is almost subpar. Even uh, people with uh, you know the acting chops, and may, this would have been very early in their career. So Hugh Grant, who I think has always been a very good character actor, um, he even just feels like he's not quite on his game. Um, while I enjoyed Peter Capaldi, probably the most of our, our heroes, um, he too kind of comes across as amateurish and the girls very much. So they almost feel like, you know, you know, soap opera actresses is what they, the best I could say for them. Um, just very dramatic and very dry. And, but it, as, as a whole, the chemistry just works because of the film that they're in. There's something very just wacky eighties about this movie that I don't know if some of it is the, um, sexualization in the movie that, I didn't expect <laughs> to happen. Yeah. It's yeah, overtly yeah. sexual throughout the entire thing. It is. It um, is very much so. But there's just something that I can't put my finger on that just makes it feel like a trippy eighties movie that could only be to happen in the eighties. That doesn't take itself yeah. too seriously because they're high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They and certainly don't make them like this anymore. Oh yeah, definitely not. It's very much in the vein of before there was direct to video movies, there was almost direct to midnight showing movies. And that's what this one really feels like in the eighties. You didn't have a lot of video. You didn't have a lot of movies that went straight to video. Like you, you know, we saw that surge in the nineties really is when that kind of became a thing. But a lot of these films that would get produced and a lot of times they were art films from the UK or, or Europe somewhere they were always films that, that found a distribution in the U S but it was never, it was always very limited run or it was midnight showings places, um, that were more of kind of special event type things. And then this fits in that mold of those type of films very much. And it would be what eventually became the straight to video market in the nineties, but it managed to live in that realm of movies that were actually getting distributed in theaters, just in, in limited run. It's definitely one of those movies that would have been on like HBO late at night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And don't confuse my, uh, my enthusiasm for, for quality. As Glenn said, this is not a good movie, <laughs> but it's so bonkers that it, it, it just is a lot of fun to watch. And it's funny, Keith, that you say it feels like an 80s movie because the vibe that I got through the whole thing was almost 70s Doctor Who. Um, this to me kind of had an image of the Fendal feel to it where we've got a cult. I could see a little bit of Seventh Doctor in here. Yeah, I mean, we've got a cult and we've got a house and there's a cave and it's connected to the, the house, of course. And, uh, you know, and then Capaldi is doing Doctor Who things. Well, Capaldi... And his performance to me felt very much like John Hanna in The Mummy. Even down to, for some reason, his accents. Every time he spoke, I had to do a double check 
take to make sure it wasn't John Hanna. Hmm. <laughs> I had not made that connection. I don't know if it's just because they're both Scottish and young <laughs> in those movies or and because they're both playing archaeologists. I don't know what the deal was, but hmm. it was not the Capaldi that I know and love today. <laughs> no, it certainly was not the Capaldi that I, I know or was expecting for that matter. Especially uh, right. even the, the latter half of the film when hmm. he showed up with the bagpipes <laughs> <laughs> and was so forward thinking, you know, when he ejects himself with the, the snake venom or the antidote, I was like, Oh, Oh, you're, you're pulling a doctor on her. This is going to be great. Cause you're smarter than the other people in the room. Oh, I'm so excited. But, um, apparently this is, uh, the one film that, um, uh, Hugh Grant is embarrassed to talk about. <laughs> I wonder why. I, I don't know that he needs to be. I think he can just come out and say, "Yeah, you know, it was, a, it was early days. It was, it was early. I needed a new water heater, and and move on. We'd we'd still love him." But um, you're absolutely right. The 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 two sisters were um, horrifying, and not in a horror way. <laughs> I think what this thing has going against it too is, and and it makes it all the better for it, is the fact that I mean, this was um, uh, who did you say directed this was Peter Peter Russell Ken Russell Ken Russell Ken Russell, um, he did Gothic in nineteen eighty eight or eighty six I think it was, it that's a terrific film if you've not seen it it's 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 um. Basically, the it's the night that uh, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and um, what was Shelley's husband named? It's the night that they get together, and she essentially conceives the story of Frankenstein. They they challenge each other to come up with a you know a story or concept, and it's a terrific film. It's so well done, and I've always enjoyed it. And this was the second in a set of films. That one was Vestron as well. This was the second in a set of Vestron films, a three-picture deal that he had. And he was wanting to make a prequel to a movie he did called Women in Love. And they said that he could do that film as long as he did this horror film, or he did a horror film. And this was the treatment that he came. And this is actually a modernization or a modern adaptation of an original Bram Stoker story. Yeah, I had no idea of that until I saw it. Yeah, and Stoker wrote this story very late in his life, like just prior to his death. And it is one of the the stories that they people say it's it's Stoker's, you know, absolute worst art and it's uh, it's panned generally by uh, uh literature critics. And I think it's amazing that they took Stoker's worst work and turned it into the worst movie, <laughs> which again has some bit of source materials. Yeah, exactly. And it, but it, it, it certainly has this um, just weird dynamic about it that, that it's, it's really got everything going against it. It still turns out to be this really fun film. Yeah. A lot of that comes down to Ken Russell and his direction of it. Because there could have been yeah. someone who took that script and took it so seriously, and it would just would have been a bad movie as opposed to a, a fun movie. Well, and it, I think that Russell's approach to it too was, it, there's a lot of clever, surreal things in it. He he took the the like the uh, um, when she sees she touches the crucifix, and you get the really just surreal bizarre green screen affecting that they do 
um, with, uh, you know, the, uh, the Jesus figure on the cross and, you know, just everything that's happening in the quick, you know, the zip flashes of, of zip cuts of edits are, are just really kind of cleverly done in a way that it makes it, that it, 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 it lends a certain bit of art to it. And I think that comes down to him realizing that, you know, I can really go out all out with the production, but I don't have, I've kind of got a limited budget. So let's take something that ultimately in a movie could look cheesy and give it an effect that makes it fit within the scope of what we're doing here. And I think that's why it works because there are a lot of those little elements where we get these really kind of trippy, almost acid trip scenes that work really well within the film. Yeah, I think some of that is him pulling from his Tommy days. Well, certainly. <laughs> and I think that's why I say it feels very 80s and very druggy. And, you know, almost pushing the sexual boundary in a way that only is done in the 80s. That is taking things that maybe, you know, you could turn interpret sexually and making them ensured to be interpreted sexually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of skin in this too. I mean, this is very much, you know, a, a skin max movie yeah. that, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that would show up late at night. And some of it is storytelling. Some of it I feel is legitimately there for the, the furthering of the story because there is a lot of, um, I don't know, cult versus religion, um, subtext to, to what is going on with Mm -hmm. this, uh, with this snake God. And, um, certainly the fact as, as they point out later that the, the foundation of the house is, you know, there was a convent built there on top of this gravesite, um, for these pagan, uh, gods. And so there's kind of this, um, duality of, of nature, um, and spirituality going on between the, the two factions. And so some of the nudity is there to kind of highlight this is what kind of cult this is. Mm-hmm. And some of it is just exploitive and, and there because yeah. this is the kind of film that it is. Oh, yeah. And what surprised me was not that it had nudity in it, but how far they took it. <laughs> because the sacrifice. <laughs> the, the sacrifice scene in particular was wow, we're okay. We're going to go all the way to this level with it. All right. Yeah. Oh, and, and it's that's that sort of thing more so than the nudity that I'm referring to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the, uh, just the nutty ideas that, you know, okay, we've put loudspeakers on the roof of the mansion because our hero lives next door to the, the, the cold <laughs> lady. And we're going to play snake charming music over the loudspeaker and she's going to come out and emerge from a wicker basket and proceed to saunter across the living room floor as she's hypnotized (laughs) out because of course she was in a wicker basket because of course she's you know totally she sleeps in a wicker basket right yeah why not um you you just don't find images like that in most cinema no that's certainly true um why peter capaldi's character had a live mongoose in his kilt I, I I don't know. It doesn't really matter because it worked. <laughs> when he first brought it out, I thought it was the stuffed version. I, I was thought like, what's it he was gonna too. do with that? I told Glenn, I've never actually seen a mongoose. 
in my life, I, I've, wa I've watched Ricky Tiki Tabby. That's as close as I have gotten <laughs> to seeing a mongoose. And so when they showed this, I was like, oh, really? And then he pulls out a wombat. I'm like, what is that? What are you doing with it? And then it scurried across the floor. And I went, oh, that must be a mongoose. <laughs> <laughs> Why you would keep it in your kilt for just such an occasion, I don't know. That seems dangerous. <laughs> now, I, I do have to point out the, the, the absolute greatest bit of this film, which is the fact that bagpipes save the day. <laughs> and, you know, for, for all of the back and forth we've had with Glenn about the merits and, and values and, and, and beautiful or not, the music of the bagpipes, they apparently are good for warding off hypnotized snake cops. <laughs> so that to me is definitely something in the plus column well i'm glad they were able to do something good with bagpipes <laughs> i loved it when he ran out of breath too <laughs> <laughs> yeah not in danger or anything <laughs> and then to see um <laughs> to see Hugh Grant pick up a claymore and cleave them. <laughs> uh, they're just the, the the longer this went on, the the higher the highs got. <laughs> it just kept moving up, and then um, I think we have to discuss the ending. I, I initially I felt like, oh, we we kind of ruined this whole good vibe thing that I had going on with this ending. I know Glenn was very much in favor of it. Oh, my favorite part is the ending, especially when the laboratory calls to tell him that they mixed up the medicines and that he ended up getting arthritis medicine, and the look on Capaldi's face. Just when he, just the the horror of realizing that he did not inject himself with snake venom, and there's a chance, actually, there's a pretty good chance that now he's been infected with this, uh, this worm or this that we we say worm, this snake. Uh, it just, uh, it was to me, it was just again icing on the cake to to get back into the car with Hugh Grant's character, and just the campy, you know, shall we stop for a bite? And Hugh Grant shifting down and revealing the, you know, pulling back the kilt and revealing the, the snake bite on the leg was just, it was genius. It was just, that was, that's the way you end this kind of film. I agree. I really like the ending. <laughs> I've come to terms with it. <laughs> and then to end it with the song. Oh yeah. Yes. 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 In the credits. That, that had to make an appearance. Which I don't know about you guys, but I could understand the words, and maybe it's because it's a studio version as opposed to maybe a mix of studio and live. But they, uh, I could understand the words of the song a lot better. I had captions on, so it didn't matter. I had captions ah. on as well, but I didn't initially. It was probably about <laughs> midway through that party sequence when I gave up the ghost on trying to understand them and just went for the captions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have it. I didn't have it. In fact, this one I thought was really. There's some Doctor Who episodes that I think are harder to understand than, than this movie. I thought this movie was pretty clear and dry. Uh, Capaldi's accent wasn't as thick. That's why. <laughs> That's true. It's very true. It wasn't. Good stuff. Well, what do we got coming up on the schedule next week? Well, coming up on the schedule next week, we have more 
in our Beyond the Doctors. We're doing The Air Zone Solution, an environmental thriller for the 90s that features uh, Peter Davidson, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy, and a reappearance of and John Pertwee. Yep. And we are pairing that up with David Tennant in the remake of Fright Night. So those are the two films that we'll be covering next week because it's still spooky time. We're going to go out beyond that? or We can. Um, Arizona Solution, by the way, for those of you who are interested in streaming uh, uh, for free on Amazon Prime. The following week, we kind of get to pair up our, uh, our, our two uh, Second Doctor influences, one being the Second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, in the original The Omen. And then Matt Smith in a zombie movie called Patient Zero. And then we can we conclude with uh, uh, First Doctor Richard Herndl in Eye Monster and Paul McGann in Afraid of the Dark. And do we decide on the other or is that a housekeeping thing? Uh, let's talk about that off my Fair enough. It looks like if you want to stream Fright Night, you can do it on the Sci-Fi app or the USA app. Oh, really? Oh, uh, you probably good. have to have a cable subscription for both. But I imagine, surely, yeah, surely. But they are available to stream right. there. Very good. And if uh, you missed the list there and you want to go back and recap, you can find it on our website, travelingvortex.com. You can find updates on the podcast there. And while you're there, click on the pay, uh, Patreon link and consider supporting us. All of your uh, money goes right into this show. And thank you for those of you that are already supporting us. And remember, you can send your comments to feedback at travelingthevortex.com by clicking on the send feedback link. And uh, until next time, I'm Glenn. I'm Sean. I'm Keith. Cheers. Good night, everybody. Be seeing you. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.